Okay, how would you complete this sentence? If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out... Dot, dot, dot. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, how would you finish that sentence? What would you want to know from a person to see how well they understand Christianity? Uh, and what, what about you? Now you can ask yourself, how well do you understand Christianity? How well do you? Now, what answer do you give in the quiet of your heart? How well do you understand it? And what do you base that answer upon? Well, we are working our way through Paul's letter to the churches in a region called Galatia. Today we're in chapter 3, 23 to chapter 4, verse 7. What we are doing, we are um, jumping into the middle of a conversation. Uh, these churches that Paul writes to in Galatia, he loves these churches. Uh, he was the first one to go and tell them about the Lord Jesus. Um, and, and then when he moved on from them, they'd got confused. Uh, that's why we have this letter. Um, And the people of Galatia, see, the people of Galatia were hardwired to think that they had to prove themselves in life. That that was how they they functioned in the world. And when we were last in Galatians, we we, we looked back into Acts and saw how when Paul visited one of these places, they mistook him for one of the Greek gods. They called him Hermes. They were going to sacrifice bulls to him. See, the people of these places were so anxious not to kind of upset the capricious forces around them. Now, in many ways, the, the, the way they lived their lives was dominated by the question, what if? What if we miss something and then suffer because of it? What if we haven't done enough? What if we are not enough? Well, after Paul had been to these places, some, he went on, some other teachers came. These other teachers told them about the, the Old Testament of the Bible. And, and, and these, these new believers found that there were all of these rules written in the Old Testament and they latched onto them because they saw here's some rules. Here's something we can use to control our destiny. Here's something we can do to secure our safety. Now, perhaps if we've got this Old Testament law, if we've got this list of rules. It might just give us what we need to keep our noses ahead. What if? It's a suffocating way to live. And and, and sadly, it's an approach to life that wasn't lost in ancient Galatia. I wonder how much the question, what if, sits under the surface for us today? What if we haven't done enough? What if we we missed something? What if we we took a wrong turn some way back and we we never managed to get back up? We never managed to catch up? What if we are not enough? No, what if, even when we do everything we can, we find the odds are still stacked against us? Now, like the Galatians, we too grasp for ways to answer. Maybe we work harder, we push ourselves a bit more, we make a new plan, we, we secure ourselves by our, our achievements or, or our finances or our family, or we, we, we kind of build up comfort blankets of people saying nice things about us. Or, or, or maybe we don't do that, maybe we've just we flatlined a long time ago. We'd ask the question, what if, one too many times, and, and, and we just gave up. Because it doesn't seem to be enough. We can't keep our noses in front. When we look around, there's always someone else who's going faster, always someone else who's doing more, always someone else who's doing better from the way that we see it. And we look at it and we think we can't measure up. 
When Paul writes to these Galatians, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. Foolish Galatians. They started by faith. Why have they started to say, what if? Why have they started to say, what if that wasn't enough? No, no, what if we now need to, to kind of supplant our faith with something else? So, so in chapter 3, verse 15, he starts to um, give them a history lesson. He tells them way, way back, right towards the beginning of the Bible, right towards the beginning of the story of salvation, God made promises to Abraham. God, God made great promises that would be answered when Christ came. And Paul says, after the promise. The promise was sure it was going to be answered in Christ. After the giving of the promise, God gave his people the law to live by. The law cannot change the promise. Now, he explains how the law cannot do what the promise does. That the law hasn't got power to give life. But what the law can do, he says, it can lead the way to the coming of Christ. That's the conversation that we are jumping into this morning. And we're going to leave it before it's done. There'll be more to see. But today we have this portion, chapter 3, 23 to 4, 7. Uh, In this passage this morning, Paul wants to impress upon these Galatians one thing. That there is one thing he wants them to be crystal clear about. Look at it in verse 26. In, In many ways, verse 26 is the theme verse here. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all Children of God through faith. All of you. That's where Paul puts the emphasis. All of you, he says. Have I got your attention? This is for all of you. You are all. What are we? You are all sons of God. You are sons of God. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 6. You are his Sons, he says it again in in verse 7 of chapter 4, but now in verse 7 of chapter 4, he wants to make it personal, to make sure each individual has got this point. You, as an individual, you are no longer a slave, but as an individual, you are God's child. You are a son. I wonder, do you know what it means to be told you are a son of God? We know, just as I read those verses, in verse 26, it says, children... Verse 6, it says sons. Verse 7, it says child. It's all the same word here. Uh, One word is being used and it means sons. And we'll see why that matters. Uh, Let's see some of the things that Paul says about being sons of God as we try to get our heads around it. The first thing, he says, you are not slaves, but sons. There are two illustrations Paul uses in our passage. The first one in uh, chapter 3, 23 to 24, he, he describes the law as a guardian. He says, let's, let's imagine that there's a little child in a family. And, and this child has somebody who is responsible for them, a tutor, a guardian, who is, who is helping them to mature and to grow up and to cope with the world. He, and Paul says, that's what the law was given for, to be that tutor, to play that guardian role, preparing for when Christ came. Then a second illustration in chapter 4 and verse 1. It's got a kind of similar vibe to the first Paul again is saying, imagine now a child who is the heir to a great estate. This child, they live in a grand house. All the house, all the land around it, it all belongs to this child. But they are a minor. They are underage. So this child can walk around saying, mine, 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 mine. And there's an adult next to them saying, don't touch. Leave it alone. Not yet. Now, while this child is growing up, it's all managed by others. 
Paul says there are guardians, there are trustees to look after the things. And, and during that time, the child's life in many ways is indistinguishable from a servant in the house. But as the child grows, when the child reaches age, it will all change. They will enter into their rightful possession. And from that point on, they will live like Lord of the manor and not like one of the servants. Paul says that that illustration matches up to how salvation history is moving forward. Verse 3 says, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. That's a fairly bizarre phrase, isn't it? Um, uh, What what Paul is doing here is putting uh, all people, really Jews and Gentiles, in a similar situation before Christ came. The elemental spiritual forces describe the the kind of basic operating conditions of a fallen world, the world that Paul called at the beginning of chapter 1, the present evil age. It's a way of saying that everybody has this kind of inbuilt tendency to to try and sort themselves out in life. And, And yet whatever people try to sort themselves out, it doesn't work. It doesn't answer the fundamental problem of sin and death. Yet people try. And the more people try, the more they get wrapped up and entangled and they found themselves enslaved and trapped. Paul says that's what we were all like. And then verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. And the result of God sending his son, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. What does it mean to be a son of God? Well, first of all, it means you are no longer a slave. Now, Paul's going to pick up on that more as we get to verse 8. So next week we'll see some more of that. But what else does he tell us about being sons of God? Secondly, you are sons of God in Christ Jesus. Back to our theme verse, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Now, why is it not nonsense to say you are sons of God? Why isn't that like saying you are a square sphere? Nonsense, isn't it? Why is it not nonsense to say you are sons of God? It makes sense if I say I am the son of Graham Fairbairn, who's the son of Robert Matthew Fairbairn. We could go through. We understand that, don't we? But what does it mean to say I am a son of God? What does that mean? Well, Paul says, verse 4, when the set time had fully come, All of history leading up to this one great moment, the great moment when God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. God sent his son, the son of God, who who existed in all eternity in complete perfection, one with the Father and the Spirit, the son who is in very nature God, always and unchangeably God, was sent. And that eternal son was born into our humanity, born of a woman. God became man and lived among us. That's an awful lot to get our heads around. But Paul goes on, not just born of a woman, also born under the law. See, when, when, when the son of God was born into our humanity, he wasn't born into a, a kind of paradise humanity. He entered into our fallen, broken humanity. Not sharing our sin, but sharing our weakness. Because his coming to be born under the law was for the benefit, Paul says, of those who are under the law. He he came into the world for those who don't meet the standard. He he came for those who who were under the curse of the law. Uh, The curse that dominated humanity since the fall. Uh, We saw it as we looked at Galatians 3.13 that says, glance across to that. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us. Now, all the anger of God that is against all of our sin was transferred, on, transferred from us onto the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a price which we by ourselves could only pay by an eternity in hell was paid in full by the Lord Jesus on the cross. Now, he was born under the law so that he might pay the price and redeem those who are under the law. And then what? Now, what comes after that? Now, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and when we think about all that he suffered, when we think about how the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, pierced for our transgressions, when we think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the agony that caused him to sweat blood, when we think about his, his soul being plunged into the darkest of night as he hung on the cross, when we think about him paying the price for our redemption, do you know what he was paying the price to do? Yeah, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, he did that. But then what comes after? What, what does Paul say? Verse 5. That we might receive adoption to sonship. God sent his son so that we might receive sonship. The Son of God became what we are, born of a woman, born under the law. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. You are sons of God because that's what Christ died to give you. Sons of God, says Paul, sons of God in Christ Jesus. The third thing, you're sons of God through faith. Again, our theme verse is right there, isn't it? Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You are sons of God because that's what Christ died to give you. You are sons of God because that's what your faith receives. He explains in verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. See, at that point of baptism when someone's faith goes public, the, the act of submerging into water is an illustration a picture of how by faith we submerge into Christ it's like putting on a fresh set of clothes see when somebody puts their faith in Christ that the spiritual reality is that they become so profoundly bound up with Christ so that what is true of Christ becomes true of believers and this is just mind-boggling mercy from God isn't it We're such miserable sinners, aren't we? And we've got such a great mound of dirty washing piled up and our clothes are filthy before the holiness of God. And before the holiness of God, we're just covered with stinking, festering muck and yet God decides simply by faith in Christ. Trust Christ as your saviour, he says, and he will clothe you with the dazzling, pure, bright whiteness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith unites us to Christ so that what is true of him becomes true of all believers. But let me ask you, what is fundamentally true of Christ? What is fundamentally true of him? He is the son of God. So if we're bound up with him, if we're submerged in him, if we're clothed in him, then we are what he is. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So one of the reasons why it's important to keep something of that language of sonship. That's the type of of relationship we have with the Father. It's because Christ the Son has come. 
The only way we can, we can become children of God is when we are joined to the one who is the Son of God. And so Paul presses it harder in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see how the way that people made distinctions in the ancient world seems so familiar to us? Sad, really, isn't it? What, what, uh, how do people separate themselves? By race, by social status, by gender. Now, the heart cry of fallen humanity says, what if I am not enough? What, what if I'm always going to be inadequate because of, because of where I was born or because of how I was born? Now, what if there is something that's just unchangeable about me that will always shut me out? What if? Well, Paul says, when it comes to sonship, those distinctions are irrelevant. Now, the world can make all kinds of separations based on these things. The world can make all kinds of discriminations based on these things. But God Almighty will never discriminate like that. Now, these differences, they don't get removed, but they get united together as all manner of people with, all, with every difference enhancing the beauty of the unity. Now, Paul is shouting out loud, you are all sons of God. So stop saying, what if I'm not enough? Stop saying what if and start saying even if. Even if I'm not the right ethnicity, whatever that might mean. What if I'm I'm a have not rather than a have? What if I'm at the bottom of the social scale? What if I'm the wrong gender? What if all the odds seem to be stacked against me? Even if, even if, even if I cannot do enough, even if I am not enough, even if, yet through faith I am a child of God. Now let the weight of that sit happily on our hearts. It's not you will be, it's not you might be, it's you are. It's not some of you, not the best of you, but all who trust in Christ. It's not certain classes or or, or races or genders. It's, It's not based on where you were born or how you were born. All are sons of God, all are one in Christ Jesus. Faith does not say what if, faith says even if. All can be sons of God through faith. And if you sit here this morning and you are trusting the Lord Jesus then no matter how weak that faith may feel, no matter how flimsy we might be, you know, even if our faith is as small as a mustard seed, you are sons of God through faith. Do you know what it means to be told you are a son of God? Verse 29 goes on, and if, the fourth thing, you are heirs of God. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Again, we, we saw this earlier in, in chapter 3, that the promise made to Abraham is, is, is it's a promise which basically means the rebuilding of the whole world in perfect bliss. It's a big promise. Galatians 3.16 says the promise was made to Abraham's seed. There'll be one who was born in the line of Abraham, one who would be the cause of the glorious turn of all history. And through that seed, blessing would flow to all the nations. And Paul says that seed is Jesus Christ. But now, in verse 29, since your faith submerges you into and clothes you with Christ, so that what is true of Christ becomes true of you, he is the seed of Abraham, so you are the seed of Abraham, and all the inheritance promised to him is yours. Integral to sonship is inheritance. When Mufasa stands on Pride Rock with Simba, you've got to have seen The Lion King. If you've not, go home and watch it. 
Um, Mufasa says to his son, look Simba, everything the light touches is our kingdom. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And Simba says, all this will be mine? And Mufasa says, everything, everything. Our king is not king of the pride lands. He's the king of all the lands, isn't he? And we're not heirs of some wealthy man. We're not uh, heirs of some human dignitary. When we are made sons of God, we become heirs of the creator of all things. Now, all the wealth and the beauty and the greatness of all, all nations over all time is dust on the scales compared to the heavenly inheritance saved up for the children of God. Can you imagine what's to come? Imagine that when the treasuries of heaven are opened up, that heavenly realm that we can't even imagine what it's like. Imagine the day when the, with the full inbreaking, when, when all of heaven and, and earth are joined together in a new creation. Of course we can't. It's like, um, it's like Samuel Walton telling his baby son Rob that one day he will inherit the family business. There's this little baby kind of doing what babies do and not really listening, but, but he wouldn't have understood the noises from his dad's mouth as his dad says, you're going to inherit the family business. Samuel Walton had founded Walmart, and his son was to inherit a business worth $190 million. The baby had no idea how much was coming, but that is nothing compared to what is coming to the children of God. We are not sons of Samuel Walton. You are sons of God. And and our Heavenly Father doesn't pass his stuff on when he dies. No, when we die, he brings us to himself. That's what heaven is. It's a family gathering. The best part of the inheritance to come is that we get brought to our heavenly father. We have Jesus, as our brother. That's what will make heaven, heaven. The crown jewel of our inheritance. The Bible says, yeah, we're going to inherit the world. That's pretty awesome. But best of all, we will be with Father God. The one who loves us, who loves us for Jesus' sake with all the love that he has for Jesus. Uh, Jim Packer said, to see and know and love and be loved by the Father and the Son in the company with the rest of God's vast family is the whole essence of the Christian hope. That is our inheritance. You are heirs of God. That's the big thing that Paul wants the Galatians to understand in our passage. He wants it to be the soundtrack of their lives. You are sons of God but there's something more you are sons of God and God really wants you to know it God really wants you to know it in the pretty brutal film Blood Diamond there's a young boy dear who gets kidnapped he gets drugged he gets made to do things that are terrible he becomes a child soldier and his father's searching for him when his father finds him a deer is pointing a loaded gun at his dad. And his dad doesn't look at the gun. He looks at his son. And he says, his dad says to him, you are deer Vendi. And the poor boy stares blankly because he doesn't know who he is. And so his father continues. You are deer Vendi of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Neander and the new baby. The cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. A good father wants his son to know who he is. And so Paul writes to the Galatians, 
They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who they are and they're striving to become something. But the reality is they are already that thing. Being a child of God is not something that God wants to be a secret. It's not something that God wants you to doubt. He's not just a good father. He is a perfect father. And he wants you to know that you are his children. And so in verse 4, it says, God sent his son. God sent his son to do everything needed to make us like him, that we might be sons of God. That's what God has done to make you sons. And then he says, verse 6, look at verse 6. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. That's what God has done to make you know that you are sons. Abba. It's the Aramaic word for father. It's how Jesus spoke to his heavenly father. It's what Jesus cried out in Gethsemane. The the point of using that word here is to show us that the very same relationship that Jesus Christ had on earth with his father, the way he understood and related to his father in heaven, that is what has been implanted into the heart of believers. The intimacy that erupts from our hearts is the same intimacy that exists between the eternal son and the father by the spirit. God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts so that Christ is closer to us than we are to ourselves. There is a cry in our hearts. There is a continual calling that comes out from the very depths of our being. It comes from our hearts. That is, our hearts is is you at your most you. From the very center of you. Right from your heart, there is a crying out. And do you see who's doing it? Who is calling? It's the spirit who cries from within us. That is wonderful and weighty. Now, we might forget, maybe we often do, like Dia Vendi, so muddled, so messed with that we forget. But even if we forget, deeper than our ability to hold it, deeper than our awareness of it, right from the core of our being comes a cry that constantly is lifted up to heaven that says, Abba, Father. God has put his spirit into us to actively engage our existence at the deepest, most fundamental level as his children. God wants you to know that you are his children. And as his spirit calls from within us, he's establishing this foundation, building this foundation of our lives that we are children of God. He's shaping our awareness. Now, this is so much more than than a father saying, you are Diavendi. It's the father putting the very words into the soul of his son so that his son says, I am Diavendi. So what's your heart cry? No, if, if, you're, if you're a believer, if you're trusting Christ as your saviour, I'm not going to ask you what your heart cry is. I'm just going to tell you because verse 6 tells you what your heart cry is. As a believer, the, the deepest, most definite, most assured cry of your heart is this. Abba, Father. That's who you are. You at your most you. Even when we're distracted. Even when we're so hardened and battered. Even when we struggle to recognize it. That cry is there because we do not initiate it. This is the spirit crying from our hearts. And yet I wonder if we can hear him. I wonder if we can hear him. You know, if we ever find any comfort from the thought that God is our father if we ever find any longing for heaven as our home, 
If we have any sense, even the slightest sense, that despite ourselves, uh, that despite our circumstances, despite all things, if we have a sense that we are loved and owned as children of the Most High, any, any movement within us that goes from what if to even if, we can thank the Holy Spirit because we are hearing his cry in our hearts. Now, why did God send his son into the world? So that you might be sons of God. Jews, Gentiles, slave-free, men and women, all one in Christ and heirs of his glory. And why did God send the spirit of his son into your heart? Because he wants you to know that he is your father. So let's return to what I asked you at the beginning. Jim Packer wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out. This is what Jim Packer wrote. Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Wow. What about us? Do you know who you are? No, look, if, if you're not trusting Christ, well, you're, you're, you're free to go and be whatever you want to be. You see how that works out. But if you're not trusting Christ, you can never be this. But if you are trusting Christ Jesus, you are a child of God, and your Father wants you to know it. Jim Packer goes on to say that we should keep telling ourselves this. We should keep saying it over and over when we're cleaning our teeth, when we're on our way to work. When Any time your mind is free, he says, keep saying these things. Say, I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Let's take a moment and pause. Our Father in heaven, oh Father, may we, may all of us who trust Jesus know that to be true of us, that we can come to you as Father, and you will never let us go.